BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's another edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for joining us. There's no doubt politics is broken today, badly broken, perhaps Humpty Dumpty broken. It's easy to blame it all on Donald Trump, and for sure, he deserves a lot of the blame. Nobody's divided America the way he has. But it didn't start with Trump. For a long time, the Republican Party has moved farther and farther to the extreme, ugly, anti-government, divisive right wing, whose goal is not to get things done, but to tear things down, like the Tea Party. But you know, it started even before then. As Princeton historian Julian Zelazar documents in his new book, Burning Down the House, the hatred, the personal attacks, the all-out political warfare, the political cannibalism started in January 1979 with the arrival in Congress of a newly elected smartass from Georgia by the name of Newt Gingrich. The man who destroyed American politics? Yes, we have found the enemy, says Professor Zelizer, and his name is Newt. I caught up with Professor Zelizer this week. Professor Zelizer, good to see you. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So there's no doubt that politics is broken in America today. And uh, of course, a lot of people say, oh, it's Donald Trump, right? But the whole point of your book is it didn't start with Donald Trump. It started a lot earlier, back in uh, the 80s, maybe with a young guy from Georgia named Newt Gingrich. Really? That's exactly right. Uh, I think if we think it all starts with Donald Trump, we have a bad understanding of the Republican Party and, and what's been happening. And I argue in the book that Newt Gingrich, who was elected in 78, came to Washington in 79, he pioneered the kind of partisanship which we're seeing all the time uh, in terms of a strategy for the Republican, a burn down the House, uh, anti-institution kind of partisanship, which has become the norm for the Republicans. Right. Uh, and you uh, lay that all out in the book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the Republican Party. Great read. Very important book to understand American politics and what's going on. Uh, just recently newly published. And again, a link to buy the book uh, is on the episode notes for today's podcast. But, Professor, you say that he arrived. OK, he arrived January 1979. He really came to Washington, you point out. Uh, determined to burn everything down, right? And to bring both parties down, not just the Democratic Party. Right. So he comes to Washington at a time when Republicans had been out of power in Congress since 1954. Uh, and so they were basically a permanent minority. And that's how a lot of Republicans thought. And they just assumed that. Uh, 
Yeah. And many Republican leaders, in his mind, were willing to live with that status quo. So his idea was for Republicans to ever win again, they were going to have to do anything. They were going to have to go there. And that meant not only take on Democrats in extraordinarily aggressive ways, but also to bring down the leaders of his own party, who he said were too comfortable with the status quo. So I was struck by some of the adjectives and phrases you used to describe Newt. I wrote a few of them down. Ruthless, cutthroat, constant mayhem, crippling form of partisanship, take no prisoners, cannibalism. Boy, that's not the genteel bipartisan atmosphere uh, that dominated Washington before he arrived. No, that's right. And and these are words that very much reflect what he was saying in memos and letters. Uh, he was he, he often wrote to other Republicans enough with bipartisanship, enough with ideas of civility that won't get us anywhere. And he would say to leaders, we have to be more aggressive as a party. We have to be more confrontational. And really to understand Gingrich is to understand that what you see today in 220 was not the norm uh, in, in Washington. Members were very partisan, but they also were concerned about governance. They were concerned about the health of the institutions in which they worked. Gingrich really put that aside. And in his language about other members, in what he was willing to do with ethics rules, Everything was fair game in his partisan wars. Right. And he said it. Um, uh, I was uh, struck to read uh, in, in your book in 1978. So that when he's running for election and speaking to a group of college young Republicans where he praised the Democrats because they understand, he says, that cannibalism is the nature of the business. By contrast, he went on, one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, and loyal, and faithful, and all those Boy Scout words which don't belong in politics. Wow. Yeah, it's an incredible speech, and and you know my story will then revolve around him taking down the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, in 1989. And when Wright resigns, he makes a speech warning that the House will be consumed by mindless cannibalism if they didn't stop right then. And so that speech back in '78 very much reflects how Gingrich thought about politics from from the very beginning of his career, and that's why his main argument in public in the media wasn't so much left, right, conservative, liberal. It was anti-establishment. And the idea that Democrats were fundamentally a corrupt, autocratic party that had to be brought down by whatever means necessary. So how did this young pup from Georgia, uh, within basically 10 years, totally explode the United States Congress, bring down a speaker and bring down the Republican leadership? Well, one of the most important things he does is he uses the media to his advantage, and not conservative media. He uses cable news, and he uses investigative journalists, and he uses both of them uh, very systematically to gain attention for the argument he's making, to go after a Democrat like Speaker Jim Wright and to criminalize him in public and get that message out and get it out frequently. Uh, there's many stories in the book where he gives cable television, the confrontation they thrive on. Uh, and, and then by doing that, even if he comes out looking bad, 
he's on the national news and he's making a name for himself. So the media is very important. The second thing is he basically seduces the senior Republicans who understood that he was McCarthyite, a uh, McCarthyite. And what I saw in the story was gradually many Republicans are saying, well, he's dangerous, he's toxic, but you know what? Maybe he's our ticket to power. And they keep making a compromise and literally voting him into a leadership position in 1989, knowing what he's all about, thinking they can contain him. Uh, but those are the two, I think, storylines. The third, I would argue, is Democrats ultimately don't see what's happening. The, right. the Democrats are missing it. They can't keep up with him. And they assume he's not a norm, that he's an aberration, and that there'll be a new normal at some point, a return to normal. And they're wrong. Uh, they, they don't see how the party is changing, and he's the voice of the future for the GOP. So on, on each of those points, I mean, you indicate that I haven't talked to Brian Lamb about this, but almost that C-SPAN became the enabler mm -hmm. uh, of Newt Gingrich. I mean, he certainly saw that opportunity and seized it for his purposes, right? He loves C-SPAN. C-SPAN, uh, which is only uh, on the air for the first time since 1970, in 1979, it's part of the reforms of the 70s, where you know Congress is opening itself up, throwing sunshine onto the institution, and he sees a channel that's national. And uh, each hour, it's a small channel, still gets a lot of viewers. And so he does things like in 1984, where he and a group of allies take to the floor at the end of the working day, and each day they make blistering speeches about the Democrats, saying they're weak on defense. They don't support Ronald Reagan's war against communism. They basically don't care about the security of the country. And he calls them out by name and asks them to respond. And on television, you see nothing but him speaking. But what you couldn't see was the chamber was empty. And yeah. he's using it to embarrass them, to smear their reputation. But it's incredibly effective. It gets it out there, and it ultimately gets him on national news coverage. Right. I mean, he brilliantly saw that the reforms of Watergate to basically clean up the Congress, he could use for his own purposes, right, and, and turn it into his thrust for power. Yeah, I mean, he that's how he goes after Jim Wright. The, the main weapon he uses are ethics uh, rules, which are put into place after Watergate. They're meant to create measures of accountability for members of Congress. You can only earn so much money speaking during the year. You can't, you have to disclose your finances. And he sees those and he sees, well, that's a perfect way to go after the Democrats. And so he starts to try to find places of gray in a member's life where they either break the ethics rule or, or skirt right close to the line. That's what Jim Wright did with a couple issues. And that's what he uses to make this argument uh, that the Democrats are corrupt. But by doing so, he turns it into a partisan weapon. He undermines the idea that these right. ethics rules will be very useful. Uh, and speaking of the leadership, do you see a parallel between, uh, so you had people like Bob Michael, you know, he was not a Newt Gingrich kind mm -hmm. of Republican, but as you say, gradually they say, well, you know, maybe this guy's going to help us out, right? So they sort of go along with himself. I, I, I think forward then to John Boehner, uh, with the Tea Party. You know, he was not really a Tea Party person, but he sort of said, well, you know, my job may be on the line. I'm going to give them a little room. And then you flash forward to 2016 and beyond, and you've got Paul Ryan and others with Donald Trump. He's not their kind of Republican, but they sort of say, well, you know, maybe he's the best we got right now. So, yeah. 
That, that's a I mean, that's a progression there, again, started with Newt, but it's the same pattern, isn't it? It's exactly the same pattern. I wrote this book, most of it before Newt Gingrich, I mean, before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate. So I wasn't thinking of that, but it's the same embrace of the political bomb thrower. And Bob Michael, for people who don't know, is very much a get along kind of Republican, been around for years and didn't like to do what Newt Gingrich does. But what's amazing is over the course of the 80s, he starts to use very similar rhetoric uh, to Newt Gingrich in talking about Democrats. And even George H.W. Bush, running in 1988 as vice president, he starts to talk about the Jim Wright scandal, which only Gingrich was really talking about during his campaign. Boehner did the same thing with the Tea Party, and it's this argument, well, they'll just be part of my coalition, but that's not how it turns out. And we're seeing it again and again. So the whole idea that there's this huge separation between the Republican Party establishment and this other element of the GOP, I think, doesn't really hold water. And it's not just now. This is how the this is what the party is since the 1980s. Right. I mean, it was the party of uh, um whoever, Reagan, I guess, maybe, yeah. uh, which became the party of Newt, which became the party of Trump. It's exactly right. And that trajectory is really important today if we want to see what's on the table in coming years. Now, you've mentioned um, Speaker Jim Wright a couple of times. I doubt that there's anybody listening to our <laughs> podcast who remembers what his evil crime was. I had to go back and remind myself, how. Yeah. what did he do? How bad was it? And consequences. Well, he was accused of all sorts of things, basically helping interest groups and lobbyists. It turned out most of the story in, in ways that were uh, unethical, most of them turned out not to be true. Uh, the, the two issues that ultimately stuck, one is he published this book of speeches. And when he would go speak to a group or a university or a trade association, he would sell it in bulk. Uh, and the reason was, a member of Congress under the ethics rules could earn as many as much in book royalties as they wanted, but they could only earn so much in speaking fees. That oh, was one of his yeah, crimes. Yeah. Uh, but it was legal. It wasn't an ethical violation. It wasn't a crime. It was just doing something that didn't look good that many members did versions of, including Newt Gingrich. And uh, two, he had a, a business, legal business with a, a real estate developer in his district in Fort Worth. And, and Gingrich basically argued, even though this was allowed and very common, that somehow it was a big corrupt scheme to put federal money into this guy's hands. It, it wasn't really big issues, but Newt Gingrich blew it up into another Watergate. And Jim Wright was kind of a fat target for a Newt Gingrich, wasn't he? He was the old school Paul, right? Right. Yeah. And he didn't think of how things that politicians did could look bad, especially if you were in the speakership. He didn't kind of clean things up in public. He wasn't media savvy. Uh, he wasn't personally liked very well by most Democrats. And uh, so all of this made him vulnerable. And he was not good in the media. So while you had this guy, Gingrich, who knew cable and investigative journalism, Jim Wright almost didn't want to speak on the shows. And so that clash was devastating to him as and, Gingrich came after him. Right. And so in the end, he just decided, um, screw it, right? I'm not going to fight this any longer. Was he forced out? or he, well, he, he, well, what happens is Gingrich builds up the case. The House Ethics Committee starts an investigation. But in the middle of their investigation, before they're really done with anything, 
pressure starts to build and many Democrats start to basically give in. And some are whispering to reporters, maybe it's time for him to go. Others are telling Wright, I'm not sure we can stick with you. What they're really scared about is the 1990 midterm elections. Uh-huh. And, and this guy, Ed Rollins, who is a, one of the big Republican consultants, is saying to the press, I'm going to make Jim Wright target number one. And so Democrats did not have to force him to resign. He didn't have to resign. And according to all the vote counts at the time, he was safe, but he decides to do it because his party is saying they don't want to stand by him anymore. And just to put a final point on that, he was never charged with anything by the Ethics Committee, never found guilty of violating uh, any of the ethics rules of the House at the no, time. No, uh, the, the first part of the investigation, which is really preliminary, said we'll look into it more. But they hadn't found anything. Even in retrospect, it's unclear he violated any rules uh, and nothing ever came of it. And so what came of it was enough of a public issue uh, to create the pressure on him to resign. And he also was worried about the health of the Congress. And that's another reason he himself was willing to go along with this. But as you point out, Newt had his own deal uh, uh, of selling textbooks, I believe, or something, where he was charged by the Ethics Committee and uh, later and ended up paying, what, a $300,000 fine? Yeah. I mean, it's even worse. He was, there was (laughs) another scandal back in the 80s about a book. So at the time, he's going after Jim Wright for this book deal, which, again, no one sees as a huge issue. Uh, He himself is under investigation and becomes public for having published his own book, uh, about Republican politics and raised money from interest groups in Atlanta to finance the promotional efforts. And he even has to do uh, a press conference, but he doesn't care. Gingrich says it's just different. It's not the same. And then in 1997, when he's speaker, he becomes the first speaker in American history to be fined for ethics <laughs> violations. So it, it, it suggests they don't run deep his concerns beyond what it will accomplish for him. Oh, again, great stories uh, told and good to remind us where it all came from in the new book, Burning Down the House by uh, Professor Julian Zelazar from Princeton. Let's take a quick break. When we'll come back and uh, find out what happened to Newt after Jim Wright is gone uh, and he finds himself on the way to the speakership. It's the Bill Press Pod. And today's podcast with Professor Julian Zelazar. Brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers. Hey, parents. Hey, teachers. Hey, students. Uh, All worrying about how we're going to get back to school, whether schools should reopen or not, fully in person or online. Don't trust Donald Trump. Trust President Randy Weingarten and the members of the AFT in every school district in America. They are the ones who are looking for the best the safest and surest way to reopen America's schools and get our kids back to school again in the safest way possible. For all that they're doing and all their ideas on reopening schools, check out their website at AFT.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with Professor Julian Zelizer from Princeton, his new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. So here we go. This uh, young, fresh start from uh, Georgia gets there in 1979, brings down Speaker Wright. And in 1994, Newt himself uh, assumes the Speaker's uh, mantle. How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, it was turbulent. Uh, I mean, in 1994, he was very excited, as were many Republicans. He delivers on his promise. Republicans take back control of both chambers of Congress. So many people right. see him as a savior. And he has a little window where he's in the press every day. He has daily press conferences. And he basically creates his own bully pulpit. And everyone thinks this is the new face of the GOP. But then things go very poorly. I mean, first, he has a confrontation with Bill Clinton over the budget, uh, which leads to shutdown of the federal government, which in 95 was still a dramatic thing. Today, right. it's almost normal. And, and the public turns against Gingrich, that he's going too far. He's too radical. He thought, right, yeah, he, thought that he thought they would blame Clinton, and Clinton was smarter than that. He, they blamed he, him. They blamed Newt, right. Yeah, and then he had his ethics problem. And then finally, in 1998, as Bill Clinton is about to be impeached by the House uh, of Representatives for perjuring himself over an affair he had, uh, the Republicans do poorly in the 1998 midterm. So many Republicans are unhappy with Newt. And just as bad, Newt is having a personal uh, relationship with someone other than his wife, as the Republicans are focused on this with the president. So they, they force him to resign. Uh, and that's the end. He has a very short speakership, not as short as Jim Wright, but still pretty short. But I love the fact, talk about the parallels, where, as you pointed out, Jim Wright, when he resigned, said we have to end this mindless cannibalism. And when Newt resigned, he said, quote, <laughs> I'm not willing to preside over people who are cannibals. <laughs> right. It sounds different because <laughs> Wright meant it. I mean, that was what was remarkable about Jim Wright. He really thought he was going to save this country and this Congress from cannibalism. And he, he says in his speech, I'm leaving my job. I, I'm not guilty of a thing, he says, but we'll calm the storms. Gingrich never had any intention of doing this. He was just on to the next victim when it was over. When Gingrich makes that, it's hard to hear the same way uh, because he is the creator of this mindset and the proponent of it. And even after he's been gone as speaker, he's never stopped speaking this way or promoting this kind of partisanship. Um, it, it, I've heard members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, say 
um, basically, uh, even before your book came out, right, that it really all started with Newt Gingrich. And when you look at Donald Trump today, and I know your book was, was as, you, as you wrote most of it before Trump uh, became president, but there's very little daylight between, it seems to me, between Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump, that the Donald Trump campaign was basically Newt Gingrich writ large. It is. Uh, I mean, the the kind the, the willingness, for example, of Donald Trump candidate and President Trump to use just out of bounds language about his opponents is something not only that Gingrich did, such as when he attacked the Democrats on national defense, but he promoted. He I cite this memo in the book that he put out in 1990, and it was teaching other Republicans how to speak like Newt. Oh yeah. And it says, if you want to speak like Newt, the kinds of words you have to use about Democrats are sick, traitor, uh, just totally. And that's the kind of uh, language that Trump employs. Trump, like Gingrich, causes chaos as a way to get constant attention uh, for what he's doing. And, and finally, Trump, like Gingrich, is willing to use any part of government, any institution, any procedure uh, to his advantage. So these are very similar people, and they actually have a relationship including Gingrich almost being the vice presidential pick that shows this is not a stretch to, to put these two minds together. Right. I had forgotten that Newt Gingrich was like the runner up to Mike Pence, right? And at one time he was the front runner. He was. It was uh, him, Chris Christie and Pence were the finalists. And he even flies to Indianapolis and meets with the Trump team, the family, people like Paul Manafort. I start the book with this. Uh, and Gingrich goes on television after a very successful interview with the family and interview gets an interview with Sean Hannity, who very much wants Gingrich to be the pick. Mm -hmm. But Gingrich talks about how great he is and how he and Trump are the same kind of person. They're anti-establishment. He says we're both pirates taking on the system. But then he says, well, it might be two pirates or too much for a ticket. Almost talks people out of it. Um, but he was I mean, he was very seriously considered. Back to, uh, and you use this phrase, speak like Newt. Mm -hmm. um, my very, a little self-serving here, but my very first book was a book about spin, political spin called Spin This, in which I cited uh, that memo that you point out. It was called Language, a Key Mechanism of Control. And uh, I listed, just, just to amplify your point, yeah. here, here are some of the words he said, these are the words you should use when you're talking about Republicans. Active, activist, building, challenge, change, children, common sense, you know, courage. You can go on down the list. The words for Democrats are anti-flag, anti-family, anti-jobs, betray, collapse, corruption, decay. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's what he said. A different vocabulary for one party or the other. And that was, I mean, Jim Wright, I found it, I put it in the end of the book. He wrote a letter to Gingrich in 95 and, and he wrote uh, trying to make amends. And he said, you know, he says, what I can't ever forgive you for is how you criminalized me in your language. You, you didn't really even go after my ethics. You made me look like a criminal after a life in public service. But of course, and, and then Wright says, but I will forgive you. And I hope you have a good speakership. But 
Gingrich doesn't even respond for like nine months and then writes a cursory letter saying, you know, thanks for the note. Good luck or thank, you know, good luck to your family. Um, but the language is really uh, important and, and it changes the tone when that's now legitimate uh, rhetoric to use about other members and other politicians. No, he never apologized back to, nope. uh, to write never. at all. So let's talk about the lasting impact. I mean, do we live today in the era of Newt Gingrich? I think we do. And uh, people often ask, what's the difference with his partisanship versus just partisanship, which we've had? Uh, and I think it's a it's a particular kind of partisanship that we live with all the time. It's a kind of partisanship where everything, as I said, is fair game. And if you're doing things that are clearly going to erode the institutions of our democracy, that's okay. If you're going to take norms and procedures that are needed uh, just to conduct business, to form legislation, to deal with a pandemic, that's okay. And if you're going to say things and go after opponents without any restraint, uh, you know, what Joe McCarthy introduced should be part of what the party now officially does, that's okay. And that's all the legacy of Gingrich. I, I really believe he was an incredibly influential person, and he brought all these tactics to the leadership rather than just being on the side. And one other difference that I see, and, and you talk about this too, um, I've interviewed uh, Tom Daschle and uh, Trent Lott, Republican and Democratic leader of the Senate at different times, of course, but who uh, who worked together. I mean, when they were, Trent was in leadership, he would call Tom and say, look, we've got to do something about, pick an issue, right? Not, not climate change at the time, but education or um, the military or something. And they'd get together and say, okay, we're never going to get 100% of what each of us wants, but how can we work together on this? In between campaigns, they tried to govern, right? With Newt Gingrich, as I see it, it's the full-time campaign. There's no timeout anymore, right? It's often classic, constant political warfare. It's a full-time campaign, and it's a scorched-earth campaign. And yeah. both are part of how he has thought about politics. And, and that isn't simply putting aside the willingness to stop the campaign, but it literally doesn't even create a basis for being able to do it because you've destroyed everything. And that's a dangerous mentality. And again, I feel like we're living through a lot of the costs of that right now. Uh, and again, just to try to calculate the cost, I was struck um, in the Washington Post on Monday morning, uh, July 20. Uh, they were talking about um, the failure of the Trump administration in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, I'd just like to read you one sentence, which I think sums up a lot of what we've been talking about the, uh, in the era of Newt Gingrich. It said that the Post says, the fumbling of the virus was not a fluke. The American coronavirus fiasco has exposed the country's in incoherent leadership, self-defeating political polarization, a lack of investment in public health, and persistent socioeconomic, socio socioeconomic and racial inequities that have left millions of people vulnerable to disease and death. The phrase phrase to me was self-defeating political polarization, which basically does not enable us to deal with this crisis. It, yes, uh, you just take any single issue like wearing a mask and uh, to have the president dismiss and ridicule it and basically discourage the most 
the easiest of all our public health solutions uh, for partisan purposes. Really, uh, it's it's not a surprise the difference you see in red and blue states over this issue is is self defeating. That's the way to put it, and we are all now living with that defeat. How do we get out of it? Uh, well, you know, I think I don't think the Republicans are going to change very easily. Uh, other unless there is a defeat of such magnitude because of everything that's happened that that they're forced to rethink what they've been doing it what they've been doing uh the other way will be a partisan realignment of power for now uh, i think that's the the clearest way in which this could change and we've talked on the podcast it was some people from the lincoln project do you see uh there may be one example other voices in the republican party who realize you know we've got to get kind of back uh um, back on track here. Right? They're, they're far and few between. I mean, George Conway, Stuart Stevens, all these uh, uh, Republicans involved. They're 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 very they're blistering. They they bring Republican campaigns savvy to attacking President Trump in a way Democrats actually can't. But there's still a handful of people. I think President Trump is pretty comfortable that he is the voice of the GOP. George Conway is not. Uh, at this point, I mean, Conway was very much with them. So, so I think it's they're still outliers. I'm not convinced you're going to see a mass exodus of Republicans to the Democratic Party yet. Uh, yeah, I and just one final point I meant to ask her earlier: Were you surprised that Gingrich did not take any position inside the Trump administration? Uh, was that his decision, do you think, or Trump's decision? I don't know. I mean, uh, for Trump, I imagine, or even Trump's team, it's hard to imagine someone such high voltage, high presence being <laughs> near the president. He doesn't like that. Yeah. Uh, and for Gingrich, it would be hard to work in a situation where he had to be contained. But he served a different role that I'm sure he likes. I mean, he is out front on Fox television. He's written five books, I believe now, on Trump. He is a public voice in the media who keeps making this argument of how transformative President Trump is. So for someone who has spent much of his career nurturing the media, I think there's part of him that feels he's like he's part of the team still. And there's a little Napoleonic edge to Trump, isn't there? I mean, I'm sorry, to Trump, I guess, too, but to, to Newt Gingrich. You talk about when he was a teenager going to the World War I battlefield of Verdun and what he came away from there. Yeah. I mean, he's leaving. Tell us about it. He came, he came away. So he was an army brat. And so he spent a lot of his teen years traveling around before high school in Europe. And when he saw that, he was very impacted and uh, started to see the world really in uh, kind of moralistic black and white terms and, and see the, the impact of, of war and started to think of politics the same way. Uh, and, and the idea of having to devastate and conquer your opponents uh, from that visit uh, to a military site right to Washington and Capitol Hill, that's his mentality of politics. And yeah. uh, in politics, that can be a dangerous way to think. Right. Almost like uh, I can save the world by me, by going into politics, right? And he believes that at some level. Wow. <laughs> I see the book uh, there on your shelf in back yeah. of you. I want to recommend it again. Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the Republican Party. Um, excellent account of uh, 
politics today and how it got started and how it got as bad as it is. Um, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today's podcast with Professor Julian Zelizer, author of the new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Great book, a link to buy the book, uh, is included on the episode notes for today's podcast. Thank you again for joining us. And please, if you haven't already done so, become a subscriber to the Bill Press Pod by uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. And, you know, do yourself a favor and me a favor by following me on Twitter as well, at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That's it for now. Until we see you again, stay strong, stay safe, stay sane if possible. And we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.